Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. This week, we're going to learn a little bit more about Bill W., and it's appropriate because if we didn't have a Bill W., we wouldn't have a program. So, it is only fitting that his story is the first chapter in our big book. If you hear this story related by Joe and Charlie, you may say to yourself, that's not me. I'm not that stockbroker. I'm not a guy. I'm not from the 20s. But if you spend a little bit of time, drill down and look at the individual parts and pieces of this story, you will hopefully and most probably find something about you in that story. And that's why we relate our story when we talk with another alcoholic. Let's hear what Joe and Charlie have to say about Bill W. And starting on page two. <clears throat> so I took a night law course and I tamed and trained as an investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world that I was important. I already identify with Bill Wilson. That's all I ever wanted to do, just prove to the world that I'm important also. See, my work took me about Wall Street, and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Well, why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk or to think. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wives. <laughs> we had long talks when I would steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius can conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. I have no trouble identifying with Bill Wilson. Bill, Charlie said last night that we make our living selling fast talk to slow-thinking people. Bill did the same thing. I don't think she bought any of that, though. By the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day <clears throat> turned in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed the theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. The time that Bill is referring to, of course, is in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, the stock market was on a roll. Just about everybody made money that dealt with it. About all you had to do is buy stock, hold on to it a little while, let it go up in price, sell it, buy some more, let it go up in price, sell it. Everybody was making money. Bill probably became one of the first real investment counselors on Wall Street. Bill began to say, hey, look, someday this bubble's going to burst. Someday we're going to have to start making our decisions based on actual fact rather than pure speculation. Now, being a good alcoholic, he went to the people that had the money, and he said, I don't have the money to do this, but if you guys would back me financially, I would go out and I would look at these companies <clears throat> I would examine their books, I would look over the plant and the physical properties, then I would write up reports and send them back to you, and we would begin to make our decisions based on fact rather than pure speculation. 
You know, we kid a lot about Bill, but Bill was one of the first real investment counselors that they had on Wall Street, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Now, the guys that had the money said, well, Bill, we don't need that kind of information. We're making about all the money that we need to anyhow. Again, being a good, stubborn, bull-headed, hard-headed alcoholic, you know how we are. We get an idea in our head, we're going to follow it through, come hell or high water. And Bill said, to hell with them, I don't need them anyhow. He said, we gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle. The sidecar stuffed with tent blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I'd had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. Bill began to examine these companies, he and Lois, living out of this tent, traveling on this motorcycle, and he began to send those reports back into Wall Street. And the instant those guys saw it, they said, oh, yeah, Bill, this is great information. Immediately, they put him on the payroll. They gave him a large expense account. He exercised an option and made a profit of several thousand dollars. Now, he's coming from a little old bitty poor town up in Vermont, never really had anything before in his life. All of a sudden, here he is on Wall Street. He's rolling in clover, and things are really looking good for Bill. He said, for the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way, I had arrived. And how many of us have done the same thing? My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important, exhilarating part in my life. Uh, he doesn't know he's alcoholic. He just knows he loves to drink. So far, it's not any real problem for him. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. Now, we know as an alcoholic he has a progressive illness. As time goes by, his drinking gets worse. Next paragraph, he said, My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrance of my friend terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. Just like so many of us, people begin to say to Bill, you're drinking too much. Bill, why don't you cut back? Bill, you're costing us money. Bill, why don't you drink like Jim? Bill, why don't you quit, period? And Bill said to hell with them, I don't need them anyhow. And he began to operate on his own, period. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, Helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. I've always believed everything Bill Wilson wrote. I'm not sure about that last statement. <clears throat> Lois, in some of her writings, has a little bit different picture on some of that stuff. Over on page four, first paragraph. Bill's doing real good. He's making lots of money. He's got a host of fair-weather friends, and he's doing great. He's independently wealthy. He don't need nothing or nobody. Things are going well for Bill. He's drinking and celebrating. He's enjoying it. He's having a great time. Page four. 
Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from my hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market had closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. Well, I was finished, so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to the death in towers of high finance. He said, that disgusted me. I wouldn't jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> Bill had a solution. <clears throat> My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock was so what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. How many of us have done the same thing? We come out of the hospital, the jailhouse, the divorce court, low, sad, and depressed, stop off in the bar, have a couple of drinks, and as the whiskey courses through our veins, we say to hell with them. We'll show them they're not going to treat us that way, and we're off and we're running the game. Bill was always an optimist. He always had lots of hope. No matter how bad things were here, things are going to be better tomorrow, and he knew that. So the next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left, and I thought I'd better go to Canada. Now, Bill was drunk. He wasn't stupid, you know. <laughs> By the following spring, we were living our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from St. Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. Now, things are starting to go downhill for Bill. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercy, no one would guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at the brokerage places. You know, Bill is really, this is terrible for a guy. He's making plenty of money. He's on top of the world, and he's starting to lose it now. And for five years, he didn't <clears throat> draw a sober breath, or does he work, and he has to live with his wife's parents. This is really a come down for a man like Bill. I just wanted to add a little bit of backstory from where Joe and Charlie picked up with the beginning of Bill's story. Bill W. was born and raised in Vermont in the early 1900s and by all accounts just had a normal childhood. There are no accounts of whether or not Bill W. drank when he was a child or a teen, but it is pretty much understood that as he joined the military and went off to war, that would be World War I, that he did start to drink. Probably would not have been uncommon. He saw some pretty horrific things over there, and he would have wanted to be one of the guys. I hear Charlie in the back of my head right now. That's all perfectly normal. So then he comes back from World War I, and he kicks around a little bit and gets married, and then we hear his desire to move into the stock market and make money. And once again, I hear in the back of my head from Charlie, that's perfectly normal. But what wasn't normal is that by this time, Bill was unable to control his drinking. This is shown by the fact that he was already drunk and not able to understand the stock market crash of 1929. He thought everything was fine. When he finally woke up from that bender, he got a job up in Montreal through a friend, but was unable to keep that job because of his drinking. And this is a repeated story with him kicking around for the next few years. Next week, we'll hear about how he starts to turn that around. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you'd like just the raw Joe and Charlie portion of the podcast, that is available on our Patreon site. The link to that is available on our website or in the pinned comment. Until next week, this is the Big Book Living Alive Joe and Charlie podcast. <laughs>